might be dips in performance or the market didn't change and the person's skill set didn't change and if the performance changed then there's probably a reason why and when you see changes or patterns it's good to stop and ask some questions welcome to open honest and direct a podcast sharing stories from powerful leaders on what it takes to unlock your team's potential each episode will take a behind the scenes look at how to build a high performing team from the leaders who built them. Today, we're lucky to have Ryan Levitt, the co-founder of four different businesses. One of his first, LearnCorp, was recently acquired in 2018 by Showpad. Another one of his, Catapult Chicago, which is a Chicago incubator with a 90% success rate. And most recently, he is the co-founder of and CEO of Pillar. Ryan talks about the importance of accountability, collaboration, and hiring experts early on in building your team. Hope you enjoy this episode. Cheers. Ryan, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, and being willing to share your story and give us your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. I got to do a little bit of background research outside of what I know about you already and realized that you're not just the co-founder of one or two businesses, but four different businesses. One incubator, Catapult, with a staggering success rate. Another SaaS business, LearnCore, that recently sold to Showpad. A new venture you're starting now. My curiosity is before all of this success, what were you doing? What were you up to? What inspired you to dive into this world of startups and building things? Good question. Well, first of all, I've always been interested in entrepreneurship and startups and building businesses and organizations and learning on the fly and making decisions that usually don't work out the right way and adjusting and going from there. Dating back to starting my first business in college with one of my best friends, we started a, a shipping and storage business. And we just thought it was a great way to gain some experience, but we get people who would give us their boxes at the end of the year and we would store them in a storage facility that we rented out. And then we'd also pick up their boxes and ship them home. And it was a pretty interesting business that we realized we could only make money if we did all the work ourselves. And that was fine for a couple of years, but senior year came around and we ended up just shutting that down because we didn't want to do the work anymore. It was hard manual labor. So that was the first business. Yeah, then, I was going to, okay. I was going to say, I know what I was doing in college and it definitely wasn't starting a business. Like <laughs> where'd, they, where'd yeah, the energy we, come to do that? We were just enterprising young guys that wanted to make some money and start a business. And we thought that was cool. And, and it was, it was a great experience. It became a lot of work. And it wasn't the, the actual work that was hard. It was, it was literally the manual labor. Like the two of us were not cut out to be picking up and moving boxes around. And so when we realized that if we hired employees that we wouldn't make any money, it just wasn't worth it. But that was kind of what started my entrepreneurial journey. I'll say that was the first startup. But when I was in college, it was at the University of Michigan. I was in the undergraduate business school, and this was in the early 2000s. What was really interesting is that now if you go and you look at all the top business schools like Ross School of Business or Kellogg or Booth or Stanford or any of the other top business schools, you'll see that they all have very big entrepreneurship programs and big startup programs and venture programs. In the early 2000s, that didn't exist. And in those days, you would go to business school and you were kind of forced down a path. You were either going to finance, you were going to marketing, or you were going to consulting. And so I found my way into finance. I actually started my career as an analyst at Goldman Sachs for a couple of years and really quickly realized that although I loved the people at Goldman, I wanted to do what my clients did, not what the guys I worked for did. <laughs> they were entrepreneurs. They were executives. They were 
risk takers. And these are the people I got to interact with every single day. And so after a couple of years in finance, I moved on to consulting and said, hey, I don't think I want to be a consultant, but I could continue learning about organizations and how decisions are made and how teams work and how companies communicate and get stuff done. And then I finally uh, had what I thought was my first great idea and jumped ship and started my first real startup. What I'd love to know is it was clear during your time in the financial space at Goldman Sachs that you wanted to get into this risk-taking entrepreneurship, but you didn't go straight into entrepreneurship. What drove you to say, hey, I want to go work at management consulting first? I knew that that's the direction I was going to go. I didn't know how I was going to get there though. And I knew that I needed to learn more than the knowledge and skills that I built from being a financial analyst. I needed to really get my hands dirty in organizations and working with executives at, at some Fortune 500 companies and also some mid-sized companies too. It was a very diverse set of clients and projects that we were working on. And that's what I liked. It was about learning and, and just kind of seeing the world and learning more about different industries and businesses and the way they operate and the way they succeed or they fail. And just for the record too, like, I actually did not like being a financial analyst or a consultant. In fact, I kind of hated both of them. I love the people I worked with and, and the companies were great, but the work to me wasn't what I wanted to be doing. However, I still, if I could go back in time, I wouldn't have changed anything. And, and to this day, I talk to kids in college or in business school all the time. And I tell them like, although I know you want to be in startups, because they'll be talking to me about startups or venture or, you know, entrepreneurship or whatever it is. And I was like, I know that's where you want to go, but I think you'll be more successful if you put in your two or three years at the bottom of the totem pole working at a big organization because you actually learn how to work and you learn how to communicate and you learn whether it's right or wrong, the way companies operate and make decisions and the way communication happens. And if there's politics or red tape or policies and whether things move quickly or slowly, you get to actually see all that and learn it. And when you do go and start your business, you'll be much better positioned from a knowledge standpoint and just the ability to work and manage and be part of teams. Those are really critical skills that a 22-year-old graduating from college probably does not have yet. Sounds like there were several things you took from business school, your financial work, your management consulting. What was one of the most important things you took and brought into your work as an entrepreneur? One thing which I've been talking about with some of my friends and early business partners is that one of the most important and transferable skills anybody could have is sales. And schools very rarely teach it. Oftentimes, as an entry-level person, you get no training in sales. Oftentimes, even as you move up the chain, right? Think about consultants and financial advisors and investment bankers. They actually don't get training on selling or accountants or lawyers or anything. Sales is the one skill which actually crosses all of those industries. And I saw that really early on because it's, it's just about being genuinely curious, right? And relating to people and trying to understand their problems and trying to figure out a solution to them. Those skills are really, really critical. And that was left out of all curriculum, whether it was in school or on the job. And then I think the other thing is just working as part of a team, how to build consensus, how to understand the incentives of everybody on the team, whether that's your boss or 
someone that works for you. If you can understand what drives them and how they're incentivized and what they're trying to solve. And I think early on, you just kind of take orders and go and work. And then you start to realize like, hey, hey, I should be asking more questions. Maybe I should really try to understand why this should be done. Or maybe there's a better way to do it or why someone is operating the way they are or asking the questions they are. And, and the more that you can understand as an individual contributor, the more productive and beneficial you're going to be to the entire team. But in the working world, and whether you're working for a big company or you're building your own company, being able to manage at all different levels is really critical. I mean, the first part of my life before starting my business, and I tell everybody, I wish I learned sales. I wish I took entry-level sales jobs to learn that. So I think that's a, a spot-on lesson to learn. But it sounds like you married that idea with you know one of your first businesses, which was LearnCore, which, if I'm correct, dove into sales training for leaders within companies. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Ironically, that's not why we chose to build LearnCore, because we're actually targeting sales teams. We're selling to sales leaders at companies that had big sales teams. So those people were actually focused on building the right sales talent and training and coaching and all that kind of stuff. But I'm when you ask the question like that, I guess it is one of the reasons I was drawn to that is because I am really passionate about sales as a skill that, that everybody should have, or everybody should at least know about. And understand that there's nothing negative with sales, right? If you're going to be successful in anything, you need to be able to influence others and build consensus and communicate well. So. And I think it was Craig Wortman that helped me kind of change that narrative, which was selling is not like stealing from people. It's actually helping people solve a problem. And if you can't help them solve the problem, then you shouldn't be selling to them. And I was like, Oh, that's actually a really good way to think about it. Craig was the first person I ever saw actually speak about sales. I, I audited that class and I tell everybody, it's like, it, it's a, it's like a life-changing class to see Craig talk about entrepreneurial selling. And, it, and I think that it should be put into every single curriculum, not just for entrepreneurs, for anybody. It's funny that you also have the Craig Wortman experience because he's, he's the best in the business. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes for everyone. It's, uh, it's Craig Wortman's entrepreneurial selling class. And listen, to be honest, I was apprehensive to even take it. It's like sales, I don't know. So it was great. And the second skill that you shared, which is how do you build consensus? How do you understand other people's incentives and what they want? That's an important skill. And how were you able to actually get other people on board to build consensus to understand what their incentives are? Like, what are things you did to do that? Uh, we made a lot of mistakes. And I think that the hardest transition for an entrepreneur is when you go from doing everything yourself with a small company or with you and your co-founders and through brute force and you just go and get it done to then having a team with a couple levels and different managers and you're actually no longer doing the work, right? Other people are doing the work and you're helping to drive the direction and make sure everybody's bought in and aligned and accountable. Toward the end of our run at LearnCore, we were doing a good job. I think early on we were doing a bad job. And I think a lot of it was just trying to be honest about that and understand things from the perspective of everybody else on the team. And as we continue to grow, try to have a much more introspective approach, right? What are we doing that works? What doesn't work? Why not? Why do people feel the way they feel? And asking questions and trying to get as transparent answers as we possibly could. And I mean, it was just over time, we were able to build trust. And, you know, we kept hearing over and over again, like, hey, we want 
more transparency. We want more transparency. And so at first we thought, oh, okay, you know, that's probably like we'll share numbers. We'll share our revenue and our expenses and our growth rates and some of the financial metrics, right? That's what we thought about with transparency. And then yeah. we would share that. And then the team would say, like, hey, like, we, we still, we need more transparency into what's going on. And what more can we you like, share? Right, we're like, well, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? What do you want? And, and at the end of the day, what we realized that they wanted to have they wanted to be part of some of the, the more strategic conversations. They wanted to have more just open dialogue as a team and ask questions. And they wanted us to hear how they felt as employees and, and policies that we were making, right? Like, why did we make them? It was more around decisions that were being made, kind of overarching strategies that were driving some of the metrics. But it was funny because like there was a clear disconnect in what does transparency mean? And so a lot of it is trying to listen. As an entrepreneur, you go from doing everything, so you're acting, and then when you're actually leading a large organization, it's more listening and less acting, or at least listening more first before you make decisions. And I think that that's a big change that is hard. You mentioned early on we were doing a bad job. How did you know you were doing a bad job? If you have a strong emotional IQ and you're perceptive to other people and their feelings and the way that they react and their body language and the way they communicate, you see that. And then at that point, you just need to be honest with yourself and you know, not make excuses, but actually you'd rather get to the truth and reality and then try to solve it. And as soon as you flip that switch, right, as soon as we did, then we can start to get into problem solving mode. And then it, it really changed the way that we built the culture and managed people and what were some of those identifiers, right? You're like, I kind of knew, but what were some signs that, that gave you some of the intuition to say, oh, something seems off here? That's a difficult question. It might be the way that people communicated with each other or people being defensive sometimes, or there might be dips in performance. And sometimes that goes back to, you know, the market didn't change and the, and the person's skill set didn't change. And if the performance changed, then there's probably a reason why. Maybe it's motivation, maybe it's incentives, maybe it's communication, maybe it's they don't like the manager that they're working for. And when you see changes or patterns, right, it's good to stop and ask some questions. That's so interesting. You know, because you mentioned, right, it's high emotional intelligence, but it's also what you just said is a high level of looking at analyzing and doing kind of what entrepreneurs do, which is you did pattern recognition, right? You know, even if you don't have a high emotional intelligence, if you start to see a performance dip or if you start to see, you know, aggression between employees, that's something that anybody listening to this can easily just start to explore, which is it's easy to pass that off and not explore that, even if you have high emotional intelligence. The problem is that oftentimes the performance change is a lagging indicator, right? That, ah. that it takes a while to get to that. And if you do, by all means, you should recognize it and you should attack it. But I think the leading indicators are a little bit softer as one-on-ones become a little bit more formalized and more consistent. And we used to, you know, miss a lot of our one-on-ones as I'm sure most entrepreneurs do as they build the team. And that's not okay. That was one of the things that we started to change and make sure that we're really rigorous about attending those and making sure that they did not move. And if they did move, that we got them rescheduled immediately and very quickly. Um, But it was being, to your point, I guess, it it was building out the processes to make sure that we, had the opportunity to, to even have those conversations. I mean, it's like components of a playbook almost, right? If you think about things 
mistakes not to make when starting your business, you just said it, you said it pretty darn clearly is don't miss one-on-ones, right? You said, we've, you've mentioned this multiple times as we listened and we asked a lot of questions and we understood how people felt. And yeah, yeah, the act of doing that is soft, but the, the playbook to that is not. Yeah, 100%. It takes practice like anything else. And, and I read one of your articles or one of your interviews and put it back and you mentioned this idea of building a team from scratch and how it starts from collaboration. And you talked about it with relation to sales too. You said it's almost counterintuitive to sales teams to collaborate because sales teams are usually motivated by numbers and by their own individual metrics and and going out there and accomplishing for themselves and not necessarily for the team. What's so crucial about collaboration to successful teams that it's even important on sales teams? So it's actually, there's two things I like to think about when it comes to that. One is collaboration right the other is accountability it sounds like they butt heads a little bit but in reality they don't i think that teams will work together better when everybody is accountable has true accountability to their own work to their team's work and to the company and when everybody shares those same levels of accountability then you don't really have to worry about the direction they're going in because they all share that together And if there's someone that isn't pulling their weight, the other people on the team don't want that person around because again, they're all accountable to each other and to the company's goals and their individual goals. Um, And so with that kind of extreme level of accountability, you can actually build much greater collaboration, right? It's like thinking about a basketball team or a football team that's running a set play. Everybody knows what they're doing, what they're responsible for on that play. Everybody on the team has a specific position and role And if they don't all work together and they're not accountable to their role on that specific play, it won't work. And it's the same thing with any team, whether it's sales or a more broader operational team or executive team, they will work best together when they're accountable. And so I think that that's really a big piece of the culture that we built into LearnCore was that idea of of accountability. It's a great idea. How do you operationalize that? How do you make sure the team does that? How do you make sure you do that? It starts with the leaders, actually. And I guess that sounds easy to say, but it really does. And so it doesn't matter what the initiative is. This is just like any other initiative, right? When you get everybody aligned, you get the managers aligned and and can own that level of accountability. And we actually saw that over and over again at LearnCore, where if there was someone that we had to let go, and that is part of business, right? That not everybody's going to be a great employee forever. Those are really easy decisions for us to make over the last couple of years because they were bringing other people on the team down. You know, a lot of times when you have to let someone go, you worry about, you know, how's the team going to react? Are they going to be let down? Is it going to damage morale? But in this case, when everybody feels that way, they actually understand why that has to happen. It probably makes your life easier then because part of the battle of from my experience of letting someone go is not just letting them go but then how do i communicate this to the team but what i'm hearing is if you're accountable when you communicate it to the team everybody gets it they get it and sometimes it makes their life better and it makes them better at their job but that doesn't work if people are not truly aligned and truly bought in on that together it's a different kind of a paradigm shift in the way that you think about managing and leading people. Yeah, we always talk about accountability, but what you're saying is it actually drives collaboration and it makes the workplace easier for everybody. Right. And yes, they could succeed individually, but 
we are going to see greater team success and greater company success if they're working together and doing that cohesively. Then with that expectation, that's where the accountability really sets in, right? And, and it kind of does a lot of the work for you. But you have to maintain it, to your point, right? It's not like you just tell people, hey, we got to be accountable for our work. You have to lead that way. So if I mess something up, I have to be accountable, right? Or if something else within the organization doesn't go as planned, you don't point fingers, I'm accountable. That's on me. You look in the mirror for that. And if something goes really well, right, you're looking out the window, you're looking at, um, at the team, you're making sure that whoever was responsible for, for tactically making those decisions or acting is getting credit for it. And that's really key as well to make sure that people think that they're being felt and seen and understood. I think you shared two kind of crucial parts, which, you know, I'm not sure is, is always addressed when you think about accountability, but it was ensure manager buy-in doesn't just happen. You need to get by and otherwise it's not going to work. And then the other one you said is just set expectations so that everybody is aligned on the same expectations because those two things, when they happen, you know, as, as you're talking about it, help set up the accountability to be sustainable over time. Yeah, I completely agree. That's a good summary. What I want to know is what's this new business that you're starting? If you're willing to share a little bit about it. Well, I'm happy to share. It's called pillar. And we are making soundproof phone booths for offices. Sounds like it's really far from everything else I've done. And it is. This is, I'm in manufacturing now, dealing with sourcing materials and building products and all that kind of stuff that are like the nuts and bolts of the way the world works, which I have very little experience with, right? But what I do really understand is this idea of building teams and go-to-market strategy. And I felt for a long time that the way software companies operate when it comes to sales and marketing and customer engagement and really building that brand with your customers and that that connection that's missing in the b2b physical product space and so i'm really excited to implement that strategy and, and test it here but even more than that the reason that i love the phone booths the soundproof phone booths although it's funny it's like going back in time um, yeah. but 80% of offices now are the open office concept. And what ends up happening is that there's controversy about, are they good? Are they bad? Do they make people more productive or less productive, etc. Personally, I love, them. I think that they look better. I like the noise. I like the buzz that's in them. And I think that from a uh, financial standpoint, they make more sense for businesses, but they do cause challenges, right? Like most people are out in the open. And so you might have a hundred people in only 12 conference rooms. So there's no private space for people to take a sales call or do a demo or have a video conference. So this idea around productivity of teams is getting hurt by the physical layout of the office. But there's this idea of environment and the physical layout of the space. And these phone booths actually solve that productivity issue in a really cost-effective way where they can be flexible and look great in the office. So it's funny how many people you talk to that I don't even have to really describe what we're doing. You just say we're soundproof phone booths for offices and people are like, oh my God, we need those so bad. <laughs> it's fun. Whereas uh, other stuff I've done took a lot of explanation and now it's a very different type of product and environment. And hopefully we can build a great team and organization. What lessons are you going to be taking from your previous experience at LearnCore and through the sale at Showpad and, and building up Catapult as well into this next venture at Pillar? Yeah, great, great question. And I'm sure you hear it all the time. But the number one thing is building a team. And something that we learned over the years at LearnCore, and we made this mistake over and over and over again, is that you need to hire people that are 
experts, people that are better than you at each of those roles and trust them and give them the trust and the ability to make decisions and enable them to be successful. One of the things that we're doing at Pillar is the first few hires are going to be far more experienced than they were at LearnCore. And whereas we were hiring entry-level people early on in LearnCore, we're trying to hire people that can ultimately be managers and leaders. They're still going to be hands-on, getting their hands dirty and, and actually doing the work early on. But it's people that have experience in each of these areas that we can actually learn from. It's just a, it's, it's a subtle but really important lesson. Like I'm pausing and thinking about my next hires and am I hiring somebody who wants to get gritty and be entry level or am I hiring somebody who's an expert and also wants to get gritty? And so I think it's a really, really, you know, you said hire experts, enable them and trust them. And I think that's just, it's one of the many lessons that you've shared, but I think also really important for those of you building teams out there listening to this, it's make sure you surround yourself with experts. And so I just wanted to end by saying thank you. Thank you for sharing. And so I just really appreciate you sharing, being open, being vulnerable. Yeah, Aaron, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. And yeah, you're right. I don't think any of those were learned the first time. They were all through a lot of failures and hopefully they're good lessons. Want to hear more great stories like this one? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy this episode, leave us a review. And as always, you can drop us a note at openhonestanddirect.com. Cheers and have a great day.